is a talk on virtue. It's going to be a summary of all of my seminary teaching. So, you know, I teach moral theology in the seminary. Moral theology is the good life and how to live it better, which is another way of phrasing it. It's about, it's about virtue. Um, now, practically speaking for yourselves, the kind of single takeaway of this talk is if you're going to grow in virtue, if you're going to grow in a particular virtue, there's something in your life you know I need to get better at this. Well, you've got to identify what that thing is, identify how to do it properly, focused on the right thing, the right end, the right goal in him, and do it correctly again and again and again, and you will grow in that thing. And that's what we call virtue. It's kind of the two-sentence summary of this whole thing. Okay, so again, I've given you a handout here, so let's work our way through this. So, what does virtue, what does the word mean? Um, and this is an important thing to start with because in our modern English usage, virtue has become a very vague thing. Oh, he's a nice person, a person of virtue, or that's very virtuous. That's not what we're meaning in moral theology. That's not what the Catholic tradition means. If we go back to Aristotle, literally the word means excellence. Virtue is excellence. And excellence in a particular sphere. There are lots of different excellences in all the different activities you do as a human being. Every one of them can be done in a rubbish, crummy way, or it can be done in a magnificent excellent way, a virtuous way. So I give there one example, the virtue of standing with good posture. Yeah, and I'm picking a kind of really small thing here, but I think it's a good example. So for me as a priest, there's a certain dignity I have as a priest, yeah? I should look kind of like a priest as I stand in a certain way. There's a way of being weirdly self-obsessed about how I stand. You know, the kind of person you look at and you can just see they're just awkward about how they stand. There's a, a virtuous mean, I'm going to come back to that. You do it correctly, not in an obsessive way, but to stand correctly with dignity as a priest actually brings into it a whole bunch of other things. It brings into it an awareness of myself as a priest, an awareness of myself before others, how I appear to others, how I lead others. So any one specific activity, if you do that well, it drags along behind it a whole bunch of other excellences and virtues. And so one of the things we talk about in moral theology and virtue theory is allied virtues. You've got one thing you're working on, maybe it's super tough. So you work on something that is an ally of it, grow in that, and that will help you in that other related thing. Phrasing this differently, just greatness. So I've got that fantastic quote from Pope Benedict, I'm sure you've all heard before. The world promises you comfort, but you are not made for comfort. You are made for greatness. And that means you are made for virtue. All right, a couple of words about the athlete. 
the athlete as kind of the image, the stereotype, the example of what we mean when we're talking about virtue. So the athlete is just someone we think about at a, at a physical level. He's physically great. And he has what we would call classically natural virtues, not necessarily supernatural virtues. God isn't necessarily in his picture, could be if he's a Christian athlete, but just thinking simply natural virtues, he needs to have self-discipline. You do not become a great athlete if you are not self-disciplined, if you do not go to bed at a regular early time, wake at a regular time. You do not become a great athlete unless you are disciplined in the food you eat. Um, perseverance, obedience. Athletes have to have a coach and they have to follow the coach and they've got to be humble before the coach. They're not going to become great alone. Patience and suffering. There's a whole bunch of what we call natural virtues that the athlete has to have. And how does the athlete become great? As I'm going to say a few times in this talk, repetition. You do not run a marathon by waking up one morning and setting out and doing it. You run a distance, you repeat running that distance, you repeat it many times, you become faster, easier at it, you grow in the ability to do that by repetition. But you've got to be repeating the right thing. So the athlete who exercises with bad form, runs in a weird way, he's going to build into himself a habit of running in a bad way. He's never going to really achieve his potential. Similarly, in the virtuous life, you've got to not just aim at the right thing, but then kind of ever more clearly refine that aiming so that kind of the form of that action becomes more and more purified, corrected, so that what you're growing in is the right thing, not some kind of deformed version of virtue. So the athlete, that repetition, gives us a really good, clear, classical model of how virtue works. Okay, I'm now going to introduce a different thing, concept of a passion. And this is really important for our Christian understanding of the passions. That we are a unity of body and soul. We're not just wanting to train the mind and the soul and in some disembodied way. We are body-soul unities, and we have these things we call passions. Well, what is a passion? Here I'm more or less summarizing a quote from the Catechism. Passion is a movement of the sensitive appetite that arises when the intellect contemplates something perceived is either good or evil. So my intellect sees something, and there's something that just arises within me spontaneously. I don't choose it, it just arises spontaneously. That's what a passion is. So, a couple examples here. The donut. I love donuts. <laughs> the intellect sees the donut. The intellect sees this is a Krispy Kreme donut. It has that particular quality of the light fluffiness, that sugar coating, that Boston cream filling. My intellect knows what that donut is. Yeah. 
And when my intellect grasps it, uh, this passion triggers within me and it moves me to the donut. But I then, in my will, have to decide what I'm going to do. My intellect has seen it, my passion has been moved towards it. Do I have it or not? No. So Anthony wants the donut, and I know he wants it, but I want it. My will has to decide, do I give it to him? There's a so there's these three bits within me. My intellect, the passion, and the will. In the man of virtue, they're all working together. In the man without virtue, they're kind of pulling in different ways. Second example, a hurt child. We might think of this in our camp context. So the intellect sees this child that is hurt. The passion, if you're working, functioning properly, spontaneously arises compassion. I just see that hurt child. There's this movement, passion, poor thing, I, compassion. And then my will decides, what am I going to do? Third example, four donuts. I don't see one donut, I see four of them. And my spontaneous judgment, what's it going to be? Isn't it going to be, that's too much? Or is it going to be, quick, hurry, before someone else gets here? Yeah? That my passion is this spontaneous thing moving within me. Now, how does that relate to virtue? Well, a kind of intermediate thing would be to talk about a habit. Yeah, we all understand habits. Habits are things that just, a bit like the passion moving you spontaneously, you just are inclined to do it. What have I said there? Virtue, I've said, is like a habit. A habit inclines us to do something habitually. We don't think about it. It just becomes semi-automatic. And we can have good habits or bad habits. So we use this word habit about good habits and bad habits, yeah? Inclination is a word that is used in the catechism. A slightly broader thing than just a mechanical <coughs> external habit. Um, Okay, virtue. I said, unlike a habit, a virtue isn't just a habit, it's something a bit deeper than that. I said, unlike a habit, it is interior, not exterior. And I note next, I said, the same exterior action can be a different act or virtue if it's different at an interior level. And then I tried to specify that with a good student example, reading a textbook. So, reading a textbook, what is the action? Now, on one level, the exterior of the action is obvious. You're reading the words on the page. But why are you doing it? What is actually at a moral level, a personal level? What are you actually doing? So, on one level, it could be an act of obedience. So, the teacher has commanded you to do it. You're just doing what the teacher said could be an act of perseverance. You just, you've got to get through this thing, you're reading through those pages, what is kind of the thing within you that's happening? You're just persevering, getting through it. 
different example, an act of religion. Now suppose you know you're doing this as part of your faith, that I need to become a better person, I need to study in the light of God. Let's imagine it's a prayer book. Um, what am I doing? The action is an act of religion, as St. Thomas would, would describe it. So all of those, the same exterior act, but within me there's something different in kind of why I'm doing it, how I'm engaging. And so the action that is being done, the action that is being repeated, will change depending on how I engage it. Are we warm enough to turn the heating? Um, Okay, let me flip that even more differently and say it could be an act of pride. So I'm reading that book, same exterior action, but in pride. I'm a better student than him. I understand this book. He probably doesn't even know what these words mean. Um, same exterior action, but what's being built in me actually isn't a good habit at all. It's the habitus of pride, which is a vice. So I have to see what I'm doing and engage with it in the right way in order that what by repetition I'm forming in myself is the right thing. Okay, I'm just gonna run through that example with my prayer book now, just because I think this hasn't been, the textbook doesn't quite cut it. The breviary. You know, priests have to say the breviary five times a day. It's the bit of my priesthood I hate. I do not enjoy saying the breviary. I do it every day, five times a day. I check that box. I do, I'm faithful to it. But it's an act of obedience. The church commands it and I do it. I persevere. I get through it. But what it's supposed to be is an act of religion. It's supposed to be me not just reading the words on the page and getting through it, but me worshipping God, engaging with God in the form that the church has commanded me to do. But how I engage with the words on those page can either just make me grow in perseverance, grow in endurance, grow in just getting it done, and I'm that kind of guy, I just, I'm really strong at getting it done. Or I can grow in becoming the kind of person who worships God. And this is a, a, a habitual act of worshiping God. I've got to repeat the right action in the right way to foster this growth in the right thing. Okay, over the page now. So here I've written down what I've said to you already, growth in virtue, what causes a virtue to grow in it? And I've said here two things, repetition and grace. So. Aristotle did not know the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord hadn't been born yet. Aristotle knew an awful lot about virtue. He said what causes virtue to grow is repetition. And when we think of the athlete, 
we can model all that out without knowing God at all. Repetition, repetition, repetition. This is what causes me to grow in virtue. In the light of the Lord Jesus, however, we know more fully the human person. We know what's really going on within us. And we know when we're growing in those virtues that relate to God, so why am I doing all these different things for him, in union with him, by his power? Then these are what we call supernatural virtues, not just natural virtues. They are infused by him into me. And what causes that infusion to increase or decrease? Uh, repetition. So each time I do a good act to, directed to him, in union with him, calling on his power, every time I do that, I remove an obstacle to his grace coming in. So actually it just means it's the same thing. Repetition causes the growth in the virtue, whether it's natural or whether it's supernatural. But by taking that natural action, orienting it to God, calling upon his power as I do it, it's not just the virtue of the athlete that grows in me, but the virtue of the Christian. Every specific action I'm doing, I'm perfecting myself in that activity, directing it to him with his power, infused virtue being infused into me. Okay, a couple other clarifying points here. The difference between a virtue and a vice. So a virtue and a vice are, on one level, the same. They're both a steady inclination to do something. So if you always hit the snooze button when the alarm goes off, you have a steady inclination to waste the first 10 minutes of your day. Uh, if conversely you have a steady inclination by repetition to leap out of the bed when the alarm clock goes off, to say, thank you, Lord, for another day, to kiss the floor in an act of service, to immediately do 50 push-ups, um, you have habituated yourself in all kinds of excellences in that first moment of the day. Or you can habituate yourself to all kinds of vices in that first moment. Yeah? They're both habituations, one with a good end, another with an end that just brings us down. Three phrases I say there, authentic measure, true end, proper function. So whatever you are doing in your activity, what is the proper measure of that activity being correct? To measure is one of the things. So, four donuts, very hard to see how that's good measure. Two donuts, sometimes. Um, many times, zero donuts is good measure. Um, what is the right measure, kind of even at the level of quantity? What goes with that 
is identifying the end or the function of the activity. What is the purpose of eating? What is the purpose of snacking? If I'm thinking about that as I'm about to engage in that activity, that in itself, the end, the function, the purpose of it, will tell me the correct way to do it. And you know, pleasure is part of how we recharge ourselves, how we recreate ourselves. Pleasure is not a bad thing, but it needs its proper place, its proper time, its proper measure. A man who is always suppressing his pleasures will just be disordered in a different way. Virtue and vice, proper measure, proper end, proper function, that's a virtue. What prevents virtue or excellence? Well, I note concupiscence. So there is within us, as a result of the original sin, the fall, the original sin, Adam and Eve, just a disorder within us that is always going to, the, what's called the inclination to sin. That If I'm not combating that, in my decisions, combating that by grace, then all of this mechanism's not going to work. Disordered passions. So I have within me a whole bunch of passions that are the results of my past actions that weren't great actions. And there's a residue of bad, disordered passions in there pulling me the wrong way. But, I say, acquiring a virtue gives us a steady inclination that counters concupiscence. This is why virtues are so important. Our passion gets trained to semi-automatically reach for good, not evil. Possessing virtue gives a freedom in pursuing the good. And possessing virtue gives an ease and joy in doing good. It just becomes easier, happier, more joyful to do the right thing because I have this steady inclination, even before at the level of my decision of the will, this pullless inclination to the right thing. That is having the virtue in that right sphere. Okay, lastly now I've got <coughs> four examples there to kind of just describe this more specifically. So, first example, Gluttony ver versus continence. So continence in St. Thomas's or Aristotle's term is just about self-control. Now self-control is not virtue. <coughs> self-control is just a man who's in control of himself. We picture the Germans, you know, utterly in control as they're marching across Europe. Self-control is not that integration of virtue. The man of virtue doesn't control his passions, he's formed them. So his passions are pulling him in the same direction that a good decision of his will is also going to direct him. He's not having to fight against his passions every single decision of his life. So, what have I said there? Gluttony versus conscience. Right measure. So, you need to have right measure in the quantity that you eat. A habituated passion, so I've said virtue is not just self-control, 
continents and incontinence, this is the language of Aristotle. So we can picture incontinence as a man who doesn't control his bladder. Uh, the reverse is being in control. Virtue is more than just being in control. Recipe. I'm now going to give you an example from cooking. I am not particularly gifted in cooking. I can cook. I always have to follow a recipe. Yeah. I stage by stage. I can go through what it says, and I can produce the product. I have a small number of things I can do without looking at the recipe. Generally speaking, I need the recipe, and I can get it done. Someone who has the virtue of being a good cook doesn't need the recipe. That whole process of the recipe has been embedded somehow within them, within their thinking process. They come to the kitchen, they see the stuff there, and they just know, oh, that, 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 what order, how long to cook those different bits. They're not needing to look at the recipe. Virtue, in general, is the same. You come to a situation and you don't need to think it through in great detail again because at some stage in your past you thought it through and you've repeated that right action many times. So that the, the recipe, so to speak, has become embedded within you. Um, I'm going to skip studio courage. Now, courage, I want to give as an example to clarify this concept of what's called the virtuous mean. So between two extremes is the right way to do something. Or another way of phrasing that, every way there's a right way of doing it, there's two wrong ways of doing it. So the soldier being brave, having courage, having strength, having fortitude, the two ways that can go wrong. He can either be foolhardy and just be willing to rush into any fight, even if he's going to have no chance of succeeding and he's just going to get all the guys with him killed. That's foolhardy. Or he can be a coward. Every situation he comes into, he's seeing the problems, seeing the possibility of defeat, and he's never going to push forward because it looks a bit difficult out there. The two ways you can go wrong, the coward or foolhardy. In between, there's this thing, courage, fortitude. You push forward, sometimes even pushing forward in retreat. I'm going to retreat today because I'm going to come around behind tomorrow and kick that guy. Um, withdrawing in order to attack and succeed later is not cowardice. It's strategic fortitude. So you could withdraw in cowardice, or you could withdraw in bold fortitude to attack tomorrow. How you're doing it within is going to make it different. But, okay, rephrasing this, the virtuous mean. So it's between two extremes, somewhere in the middle, there's the correct measure, correct way of doing it. And when we say in the middle, we don't mean halfway. With different virtues, with different activities, it's closer to one end than the other. Um, let me just read through what I've said here. 
Every virtue lies between two vices. It's thus a mean. So in mathematical averages, we have different types of averages. Um, it's like the mean average. Another way of phrasing it is that the mean is the observance of reason in the particular matter and circumstance. If I'm using my intellect, my thinking, my reasoning, how is the correct measure? That's what the virtuous mean is identifying. And I say it's, it's not halfway. So let's skip on to the next example to indicate that as well. Chastity. So chastity, um, two ways that can go wrong. Lust, but also unfeelingness or frigidity, um, where we just refuse to take pleasure and see as good the things of the flesh that are good, that are pleasurable. Um, St. Thomas, writing as an Italian, says there isn't a word for this. Now, in our frigid English Anglo-Saxon puritanical tradition, we have acquired a word for this when we talk about people being frigid. Um, but it is much rarer. Lust, there's a lot of lust out there. There's some frigidity out there, not as much. Chastity's closer to frigidity than to lust but it isn't frigidity. Um, it's between. Okay, I'm now going to summarize. So what have we been talking about in all of this? Virtue. Virtue in the sense of excellence. Started with the image of the athlete, who gives us an example of natural virtue with that training. I talked about passions, that passions are just these spontaneous movements within ourselves. And by repetition, we train that spontaneous response so that it responds in the way we want it to, that it helps us. Um, we've habituated those responses. That the right measure um, is what we call the virtuous mean. And what virtue is, in summary, it's a steady disposition to a particular good in concrete circumstances and it makes the good life easy and it makes it joyful.